Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. The holidays are coming up, and so here's a gift that'll make people feel special and unique. StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service designed to preserve memories and connect loved ones. Each week, StoryWorth emails a question of your choice, and the recipient writes a response. Like, what's the bravest thing you've ever done? Tell me about a memorable birthday. After a year, all the responses are published in a beautiful keepsake book to cherish for generations. It's easy. It's meaningful. It's a fantastic idea, and we love reading my mom's responses. With StoryWorth, I'm giving those I love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com scoundrel and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash scoundrel to save $10 on your first purchase. As a heads up, this episode includes depictions of self-harm. Please see the show notes for more info. November 1961. In southern Florida, 44-year-old Julian Harvey sits alone before a panel of officers. They're from the United States Coast Guard. And the investigators, with their starched blue uniforms and perfect posture, are as unforgiving as the room. Concrete walls, linoleum floors, even the metal chair on which Harvey sits offers little relief. Before him, nothing but blank faces and terse directives. There are five of them, five Coast Guard officers on the panel. After a moment, one of them speaks. They're going to need to hear it one more time, just to be sure they have all the details right. Five ballpoint pens click in unison. They're ready. It's Julian Harvey's turn to speak, and he stammers, not because he's nervous, but because of a lifelong condition. As many of his ex-wives might attest, the stammer is often the only sign that Harvey is, in fact, mortal. His square jaw, tuft of blonde hair, his muscles straining the fibers of his cotton shirt. It makes him look like he's arrived straight from central casting. He's a former model, and it shows. To some, Harvey is the mid-century ideal of a certain King of America masculinity. He's a decorated flyboy, a combat fighter pilot veteran of the Second World War and Korea. He's flown over 150 combat missions, won just about every medal for valor and success, and walked away from several crashes. He's confident, some might say arrogant, and he's lived his life as though he were invincible. And so far, he's mostly been right. So he nods. Yeah, he'll go over it one more time. It's a harrowing story he's told the Coast Guard once already, but he tells it again. In his retirement from the military, along with his wife, Mary, Harvey had been captaining the Bluebell, a charter catch based out of South Florida, 
they had been hired by the Duperolds, a loving family from Wisconsin wanting to sail from Florida to the Bahamas. Initially, it was smooth sailing. The Duperolt family was ecstatic to finally be on their dream vacation. For years, they'd planned to take this journey, and it was here at last. And then, unspeakable tragedy struck. A freak squall came out of nowhere, Harvey tells the panel. It tore right through the bluebell. Sharp winds, there was nothing they could do. Even before the storm cut clean through the mast, it had torn it in half, and when it fell, it broke through the deck into the hull and severed the gas line. The whole ship lit up. Harvey had done all he could, he said, again. He'd emptied every fire extinguisher, then ran from room to room looking for his wife and the Duperolts. But he couldn't pass through the walls of fire, and he was practically in a labyrinthian blaze at that point. Worst of all, though, the lack of screams. Where were the calls for help? He had searched for another extinguisher, but he knew. The fire had already claimed its victims. The silence told him that. His wife of four months, all five of the Duperolts, the passengers he had sworn to protect, all of them lost in mere minutes. The bluebell was sinking, and Harvey had no choice but to save himself. Five pens sat motionless in that South Florida room. But in his mind, Harvey was elsewhere. As his words trailed off, he saw himself in the water that night he abandoned the ship, felt the rocking of the waves. He'd watched the bluebell burn from a rickety lifeboat a short ways away, the hungry flames soaring like cathedral spires, reaching into the heavens. That was before the vessel broke apart and sank into the shadows. Only then did the silence grow deafening once more. The storm had passed, and only Harvey remained. He was alone, sitting in a lifeboat with only that. His life and a boat. And that's when he had seen it. He couldn't make out what it was at first. So he paddled closer, only to realize it was the red-haired René Duperault. Seven years old. The youngest of the traveling family. She was floating face down. But Julian dragged her into the boat and tried all he could to save her. Mouth to mouth, chest compressions, pleas to a higher power in the sky. But nothing worked. And he'd had to accept it. Rene Duperolt was dead. They were all dead. For a day, Julian Harvey floated on the water with Rene's body until they were saved by an oil tanker. And now, he was here before the panel. One officer set down his pen. There was just one thing about all of this. There were no reports of a storm that evening. No one on watch anywhere saw any flames that night. Didn't that sound a little odd? Harvey didn't know what to tell the officer. That's what happened. Harvey had told the same story before, all with the same details. For the first time, the officers show a shred of emotion, skepticism. It just doesn't add up. And yet, it seems like Harvey is telling the truth. The consistency of his story is rock solid, even when pushed on details. So while the wreckage remains to be found, as the only survivor, Harvey and his story are the closest approximation to the truth about what happened to the Bluebell. And then, the door to the interrogation room flies open. A junior officer rushes in touting incredible news. The officers turn in unison. Even Harvey's eyes grow wide. What is it? Terry Joe Duperalt, 
she's alive. It's true. Somehow, she escaped. She's on her way in the helicopter right this minute. No, she's not awake yet, but doctors think she's going to make it. All eyes turn to Julian Harvey. He stares back. They're waiting for a response, but he's just as shocked as the panel. Well, uh, isn't that just wonderful news? He stumbles over his words, his jaw clenching at every pause. And then he stands. Can he be excused? He's exhausted from the wreck, the grueling interview process. And with this great news about Terry Joe, he could use some sleep. That evening, Julian Harvey checks into a hotel under an assumed name and pays for a one-night stay in cash. Once inside, he sinks onto the bed, lays his bag at his side. There's a long exhale. And then he's leaning, reaching for some hotel stationery. I'm going out now, Harvey writes in clear cursive. I'm a nervous wreck, and I just can't continue. He pulls a long razor blade from his bag, disrobes, and heads to the bathroom. How has it come to this? The blade, his only out, from the brutal punishment he'll surely receive for his crimes aboard the Bluebell just a few nights prior. He looks at himself in the mirror, stares deep into his own eyes. As the questions keep on coming, how did he become this monster? Worst of all, how did he get so sloppy? We'll get to all the answers, but for now, all you need to know is that Julian Harvey has a tough decision to make. History happened. The good, bad, the ugly. This is the underside of history. The lesser-known pieces lost in the bigger picture of time. From the creators of Myths and Legends and from Cast Media, this is Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains. We're Jason and Carissa Weiser. Join us every episode as we explore the dark, quirky, and bizarre history that you might not have heard before, but really should. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. You can listen to Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, ad-free on Amazon Music. I love photography. I take tons of pictures of our family, but they all end up in a folder on my computer where nobody can enjoy them. So when we learned about this digital frame that lets us put all our photos from my phone pictures to your high-res images on display, we had to give it a try. And let me just say, we are so glad we found Aura Frames. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and more, Aura is nothing like the digital frames from a decade ago. Every Aura frame is thoughtfully designed to fit any decor style with a stunning HD display, unlimited storage, super easy setup, and no fees. I just connected our Aura frame to Wi-Fi, then used the free Aura frame app to add as many photos and videos as I wanted. I am the biggest fan, truly, of Aura frames. The one on our entry table currently shows all our fall pictures, whereas the one in the kitchen has all our family adventures from the year. They're versatile, they're elegant, and the picture quality is so clear. They just make me really happy. Aura Frames makes easy, meaningful holiday gifts, especially for the hard-to-shop-for folks in your life. Preload with favorite photos and even a personalized video message. No need to wrap because every box is ready to gift. Give yourself the gift of time and check off a few of those names on your list a little early. From now through Black Friday and Cyber Monday, listeners can get $20 off Aura's best-selling frames. 
Just go to AuraFrames.com slash scoundrel. That's A-U-R-A frames.com slash scoundrel. Terms and conditions apply. There are tons and tons of podcasts out there these days, and yet the best way to find new shows is still through recommendations. So we're here today recommending you check out The Jordan Harbinger Show. Why? I say because there's something for everyone. That's true. But I say take a listen if you like high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. Every week is a new interview, a new conversation with guests that will surprise you. Like, what's a good example? Oh, you've got uh, Jordan's conversation with Dan Carlin from Hardcore History, talking about apocalyptic moments. There's also the one with Rachel Neuer, who reports for The New York Times, Nat Geo, and more, talking with Jordan about the dark world of wildlife trafficking. The topics alone are interesting, but the style of this show in particular, it's just really easy to listen to. And again, no matter what you're into, there's an episode for you. There's an impressive library just waiting for you to dig in. Whether you want to hear from the professional art forger who made millions while running from the feds and the mafia, or, I mean, I could go on and on, but I think you'll enjoy how Jordan pulls useful advice from all of his guests. Obviously, we really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations, or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Julian Harvey is born March 1st, 1917, in Manhattan, New York. Several newspapers eventually describe him as living a, quote, adventurous, accident-prone life. And he does, although things didn't start out that way. Harvey's mother is a Broadway chorus dancer. His biological father, one who abandons a mother and infant child. The years that follow are lean. His mom struggles to maintain gigs and care for Julian at the same time. They bounce from apartment to apartment, always a step ahead angry landlords threatening prosecution. Then, in a stroke of good fortune, everything changes. Harvey's mother marries a successful vaudeville performer. And all at once, Julian Harvey never needs to worry about material comforts ever again. His new stepfather spoils him. Candy, toys, wads of cash as an allowance that would rival the salary of many working adults. Harvey's mother doesn't approve. Maybe her son doesn't need to be pampered so much, you know? But the stepfather won't listen. He insists that little Julian missed so much at the start of life that he must be caught up. It's not like I can take all this money with me when I die, he says. To prove his point, he gives young Julian a sailboat for his 10th birthday. Not a toy one, either. We're talking a sailboat sailboat. A full-on rigged boat that requires a crew of at least two to pilot. And while Harvey has no idea what he's doing, the gift launches his lifelong love of speed, danger, and sailing. For years, he cruises around the bay, pushing the vessel faster and with more control. When the stock market crashes in 1929, the marriage breaks down, and 12-year-old Harvey is sent to live with a wealthy aunt, an uncle outside the city, where he continues to be spoiled in a lavish lifestyle. As he approaches his teenage years, Harvey grows accustomed to getting what he wants, when he wants it, and always without question or hesitation. But not everything is paved with gold. As an adolescent, he's small and frail, mostly skin and bones with jagged joints and limbs, and his gait is more of a shuffle than a stride. He struggles with a stammer, and his status as the spoiled new kid in school 
mixed with his small frame, make him the target of all the young bullies. Day in and day out, he's mocked, made fun of, always the brunt of jokes. Throughout junior high school and high school, wedgies, swirlies, books swatted from his hands in the hallways, stolen lunch money, it becomes the norm. And it takes a toll. There are many things Julian feels he cannot change. The way he speaks, his family situation. But there's something he can control. His body. As in, he hits the weights and pursues a complete physical transformation with religious zeal. For years, Harvey follows a strict bodybuilding routine. Solitary hours at the gym, curling, lifting, squatting, straining, every fiber of his muscle to their torn limits. And there are hours in front of the mirrors, too, flexing and contorting, twisting his frame into unnatural angles to track his progress. By the time he's 18, the frail and awkward little boy has become a Greek sculpture. The bullies dissipate, and Harvey begins to attract the attention of all the ladies. It's a thrill he'll chase for the rest of his life, too, married or not. There are never enough dates, never enough lovers. However, even with all this new attention, young Harvey seems only interested in one thing, himself. As one of his later wives would recount, being with him was not the same as being in a relationship. You were simply an accessory to his vanity. After the Bluebell tragedy, she would later tell the newspapers, I don't know which wife I was. It wasn't like being married anyhow. He was constantly interested in his body. After high school, Harvey signs a modeling contract with the John Roberts Powers Agency. He makes his way into several ad campaigns, and in one in particular, he wears nothing but a leopard print loincloth while holding a bow and arrow. In a way, it's a moment of pure fantasy. But to Harvey, with his knowing, winking look towards the camera, this photo is a very real manifestation of his transformation. In his toned glory, he's finally reached the top. Standing wild and free, Julian Harvey, unencumbered by any physical limitations. And yet, all the looks of desire he receives, all the monetary rewards for his good looks, they do nothing to help Harvey shed his childhood trauma. His vanity doesn't stem from a firm belief in himself, but rather an overcorrection for the qualities he perceived as weakness for so many years. It's a self-image he'll spend the rest of his life running from at full speed. Full speed. Like the time Harvey feels the thrill of a near-death experience. 1935. 18-year-old Harvey, as a reward for his modeling contract, is gifted a Ford Model A convertible by his aunt and uncle. It's yellow with black trim and red rims, and for its time, it's a sleek, daring vehicle. One evening, Harvey and a friend wind the car through the Catskills of upstate New York. They've got the top down, their hair tussles in the wind. Harvey's driving, and he keeps the gas pedal down, his hands tight on the wheel as he hugs every corner through the mountains. He's pushing the convertible to its limits, changing gears with fluid precision as the Model A hums along. On the next turn, Harvey strains the car beyond what it can handle. It's too tight, too fast, and one of the front wheels comes loose and flies off. The car spins and careens, birch and maple trunks turning into a blurred collage of whites and browns. Then the crash. The car slams into a tree, and yet, miraculously, Harvey and his friend remain unharmed. Smoke wafts from the engine, and they look at one another, both knowing how close they came to death just now. A smile crawls across Harvey's face. 
He can't believe it. He's shouting now. Don't you just feel so alive? It's a feeling he's never had before, and he wants more. In that moment, Julian Harvey becomes addicted to the high of evading death. He's on top of the world, and all the while, his friend just sits there, staring ahead in shock. 1941. For two years, war has raged in Europe. And after Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, the United States is dragged into the largest conflict the globe has ever seen. At 24 years of age, Julian enlists in the Air Corps and thrives, serving as a bomber pilot in the European theater, calm under pressure, and a technical master of the intricacies of flying. Harvey successfully completes 30 combat missions. He even survives two crash landings after taking damage from German anti-aircraft. It seems no one can deny Harvey's skill and bravery. Over a few short years, he's promoted time and again and wins medal after medal for his courage. Even in wartime, though, his vanity remains. Harvey insists on wearing an unauthorized leather jacket, pearl pink chinos, and a yellow scarf while flying. His superiors grumble about it, but they look the other way because he's so good at what he does. Harvey's highest commendation, however, comes from doing the exact opposite of what he's been trained to do, deliberately crashing an airplane. Virginia, 1944. After completing his tour of 30 combat missions in Europe, Harvey has returned stateside. And upon his arrival, the Air Corps asks for one more death-defying favor. They're curious about the stress limits of the B-24 bomber, the plane Harvey flew in combat, specifically how it breaks apart in a crash. It's so they can make it safer, of course. So they ask Harvey, their best pilot, to purposefully crash the plane in the James River. It's a resounding yes from Harvey, because to a thrill junkie like him, that sounds amazing. He takes off just before dawn, and when he reaches altitude, he pauses to take it all in. Thin clouds, pink in the morning light, stretch across the sky. Harvey's alone in the plane, just him and the hum of the prop engines, a new day unfolding below. Soon, he's over the James River, muddy and hazy, the surface sparkling under the sun. Radio silence breaks, and an officer asks Harvey to confirm his altitude and location. After that, the order comes, and Harvey cuts the engines. He pushes forward, sending the plane into descent. And there it is. For a few moments, Harvey feels freedom, and it's beautiful. He's suspended in that liminal space between flight and descent, life and death, control of the machine and his total abandonment of what will happen next. With eyes closed, he waits, maybe a little too long, and then ejects from the plane. Pulled into the air, yanked back into reality, Harvey rips a cord and his parachute deploys. And as he drifts, he watches as the B-24 skids on the surface of the James before shattering into a million different pieces. A few weeks later, a general pins the Air Corps Air Medal on Harvey's chest. It's one of the branch's highest honors, and Harvey beams throughout the ceremony. He'll show that medal off for the rest of his life. His greatest accolade comes not from bravery in war, but from a contrived situation of deliberately confronting death in an artificial accident before walking away. It's a thrill that Harvey will pursue time and time again until the day he dies. 
After receiving the Air Medal, Harvey stays in the Air Corps for another 14 years. He flies dozens more combat missions in Korea, survives a few more crashes, and when his back can no longer keep up with him, he's medically discharged. It's been a spectacular career, one matched by just about no one. But where does this come from? What pushes Julian to throw his body into near-death situations over and over again? Is it the guaranteed adulation that follows? That seems part of it. Is it to prove he's no longer the wimpy kid from his childhood? Maybe. But there's something bigger that drives him. Something darker. Over the course of a couple decades, Harvey marries four times. It's interesting that none of his ex-wives have anything positive to say about him. He's vain, arrogant, prideful. More than anything, according to all of them, is his notable lack of empathy. As one wife recounts, quote, I don't think I satisfied him. I don't think any woman could. He was very egotistical. He worried about himself. He weightlifted a lot. Harvey never spoke much about his romantic or physical relations. But if we listen to his wives and girlfriends, it seems he never treated significant others as equal partners. It's like he saw them only as accessories to his pride. And he paraded them around until he grew tired of them. What's chilling is that two of Harvey's wives die violently in his presence. This holiday season, I want to give a gift to my loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationship we share. That's why I'm giving everyone I care about StoryWorth. This is such a neat gift that gives all year long. Simply put, StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve all your precious memories and stories for years to come. It's a meaningful gift that connects you to those people that matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a prompt, and these questions are ones you've probably never thought to ask. Tell me about your first job. What gives you peace of mind? How did you learn to ride a bike? I love reading my mom's answers. For that one, she also included a picture of her first bike, and reading her words showed me a slice of her childhood, my aunts, that era. StoryWorth has a vast pool of prompts to choose from, too or you can write your own. My favorite is, if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? And here's the thing. After one year, StoryWorth compiles all the stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake book of responses you can share and revisit anytime you want. It'll be on our coffee table, like, forever, I think. With StoryWorth, I am giving those I love most a thoughtful, personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com scoundrel and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash scoundrel to save $10 on your first purchase. Go to storyworth.com slash scoundrel and save $10 on your first purchase. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Fort Walton Beach, Florida, 1949. Julian Harvey, 32 years old, and still in the Air Corps, careens down a slick back road on a rainy night with his second wife, Joanne, and his mother-in-law. They're on their way home from a night out at the movies. What's been a pleasant evening turns frightening for everyone but Harvey. 
Just as he did with his Model A when he was a teenager, Harvey pushes the car further and harder, testing its structural integrity against his ability to control the vehicle around every corner. The tires screech, they slide and slip, and still Harvey forces the engine into the red at each straightaway. His wife begs him to slow down. Please, for them. But Harvey tells her to relax. He's got this, he says, stumbling over every word. But he doesn't. Out of a tight blind curve, a narrow wooden bridge appears out of nowhere. Without question, the bridge is beyond its expiration date. But Harvey's going too fast. The tires have too little grip on the road. All at once, he loses control, and the car plunges through the brittle railing and into the bayou below. Harvey makes it out of the car. Joanne and his mother-in-law do not. But they're not dead. They're trapped. And Harvey does nothing. He takes no heroic action as his wife and her mother run out of air and succumb to the muddy water filling the car. It's a slow and agonizing death by drowning. When police arrive on the scene, Harvey's sitting on the bridge, his feet dangling over the edge. He's calm, too. Calmer than one would expect after witnessing two deaths, the leading officer notes. But Harvey has an explanation ready. With his military training and experience, he, quote, saw the accident coming and at the last minute opened the door and was thrown free. Police divers search underwater to investigate the scene, but they don't find any evidence to corroborate Harvey's story. In fact, they find that all four of the doors of the car are locked. There's no way Harvey could have opened the door and ditched the car. They do, however, find the driver's window rolled down and they're inclined to believe that Harvey saved his own life and then left his wife and mother-in-law to die. It's enough to launch a criminal investigation. What with Harvey's indifferent attitude and the evidence collected, Harvey is profiled by a military psychologist as part of the inquiry, and the doctor determines that under Harvey's, quote, veneer of charm and sophistication is an amoral man with no real empathy for others, a man who could be dangerous. Somehow, despite everything, the police find no tangible evidence of homicide or neglect on Harvey's part. And the investigation closes with no charges pursued. And here's where the recipe of Harvey's adult life emerges. Arrogance, pride, an insatiable death drive, the callous dismissal and perhaps murder of romantic partners. For what? Well, it's not exactly clear. But it's apparent that Harvey will not, or cannot, stop pushing the limits of his own survival. And he doesn't seem to consider, even for a moment, the collateral damage he will cause and the lives he will destroy along the way. By 1949, Harvey's life is on a terrible trajectory that heads straight for the Duperalt family and the tragedy that will take place aboard the Bluebell. In the shallows of the Chesapeake Bay rests the remains of the USS Texas, one of the first modern battleships commissioned by the U.S. Navy. The Texas had served in the Spanish-American War of 1898, primarily in the blockade of Cuba. In 1911, the Navy decommissioned the ship and partially sunk it off the coast of Virginia, where it was used for target practice all the way through the Second World War. Over the years, as the ship split apart from the bullets and shells, it became a curiosity for local sailors. Anyone who sailed frequently in the area knew, without a doubt, 
that the wreck presented significant navigational hazards, and only the most experienced sailors ever ventured close. As Jack Stone, Commodore of the Capital Yacht Club in the Chesapeake, once recounted, everyone who sailed those waters knows about the Texas and just stays away from her. That wreck is way off course. In 1955, Julian Harvey, now 38, buys a 68-foot yawl named the Torbatross. It's a beautiful boat of cherry-colored wood and crisp white sails. And on days with good winds, it practically flies over the water. This boat reminds Harvey of his youth, of his first days on the water that gave him his love of speed and freedom and danger. Harvey births the Torbatross at the Capital Yacht Club in the Chesapeake Bay. Before long, he hears stories of the wreckage, the Texas, tossed around the club. He listens to people talk about the ship's decayed beauty and navigational hazards, and Harvey just cannot help himself. It's a blustery summer day on the water. Rough waves peak into jagged white caps that toss the Torbatross up and down, spraying a constant mist across the hull. Naturally, Harvey and a friend are sailing for the wreck of the Texas. Harvey's at the helm, and he guides the boat closer and closer, then too close, much too close, and it is perfect. He pulls the sails tight, gaining speed while heading straight for the red buoy marking the edge of the wreckage. Everyone knows you should not go beyond the red buoy, but Harvey doesn't care, and he sails even faster. He's inches away now, close enough to see the jagged hull of the Texas lurking below the surface. The friend shouts as panic takes hold, what is Harvey doing? But Harvey only smiles. It's obvious what he's doing. He's getting a closer look so he can read the markings on the buoy, you know, to be safe. The friend, of course, doesn't buy it. You don't have to read any letters to know what the buoys mean, keep out, stay away from the wreckage. But Harvey's in charge, and he circles around to approach the buoy again. This time, he overshoots, and the Torbatross blows right by the safety marker. Immediately, the yaw is torn apart by the Texas, the sound of metal on metal filling the air. Harvey and his friend are forced to abandon ship. As they bob on the waves in their life jackets and wait for the Coast Guard to arrive, they watch in silence as the Torbatross disappears dragged to its final resting place alongside the Texas. In the aftermath, Harvey sues the government for not adequately marking the location of the wreckage. Nobody thinks he'll win the case. There are buoys. Local knowledge, sailors have been warned away from the location for decades, so it's not a mystery, not a secret. According to the newspapers at the time, it's, quote, a notorious navigational hazard marked by a buoy, and its exact location was known invisible. Even Harvey's friend testifies against him, reassuring investigators that Harvey circled the buoy and the wreck twice before plowing into the Texas. Just about everyone sees right through Harvey's deception and believes he sunk his boat deliberately. And yet, somehow, against all logic, Harvey wins the case. He's awarded $14,200, which is over $157,000 in today's money. And the government is forced to concede that no, they did not mark the wreck well enough. At the ruling, Harvey is emboldened, and the recipe of his life takes on a new ingredient. In addition to chasing danger, he becomes obsessed with chasing checks through lawsuits and insurance policies. In 1961, 
the year of the Bluebell tragedy, Harvey and his third wife, George Ann, have outstanding lawsuits against the U.S. government. In 1959, George Ann was treated for an ectopic pregnancy at a federal hospital. The surgeon, the couple claims, botched the operation entirely. It's so bad that George Ann had no choice but to undergo a hysterectomy. So they file simultaneous suits. George Ann sues the government for taking away her ability to conceive a child. She's asking for $300,000, or a little over $3 million today. Harvey sues for $50,000, which is about a half a million in today's money, for what he calls, quote, the loss of normal husband and wife relations. But as with everything in Harvey's life, there's an unfeeling, cynical core to his lawsuit. In 1961, Harvey and Georgian are already divorced. In fact, Georgian had previously sued Harvey during their divorce proceedings for, quote, mental cruelty. She won her case against him, and Harvey's abuse has legal repercussions when Georgian is awarded a financial settlement by the courts. Conveniently, another boat Harvey was sailing in the Gulf of Mexico sunk, supposedly under no fault of his own, and he received a large insurance payout that covered most of the restitution awarded to Georgian. But in 1961, he still owes Georgian money. And in this way, his lawsuit against the government seems less about his lost relationship with his wife and more about exploiting the situation for his own financial salvation. Also, in 1961, Harvey meets and marries his final wife, Mary Den, a TWA flight attendant and journalist. She's warm and gregarious, full of life and vitality, empathy. In many ways, she's the person Harvey pretends to be. She's drawn to Harvey's youthful physique, his energy and charisma, and tales of adventure and flight. The couple meets in early winter, and they're married that July in Tijuana. Eventually, they find their way to Florida, where despite not having any proper licenses, Harvey talks his way into captaining a yacht, the infamous Bluebell, owned by one Harold Pegg. Harvey and Mary sign contracts to live aboard the Bluebell as captain and crew. They'll lead chartered cruises around the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean. And there's where the secrets begin. Known only to himself, Harvey takes out a $20,000 life insurance policy on Mary. That's approximately $200,000 today. He makes sure, too, that it carries a double indemnity provision, meaning it will pay double in the event that Mary dies in an accident. In the early 60s, a swirling confluence of forces pushes Harvey's life to a desperate edge. There's his pursuit of the thrill, or what some might call his death drive, that results in accident after accident, and every time brings his life a little closer to its conclusion. There's his history of fractured relationships, infidelity, divorce, the mysterious death of one wife, and, in the case of Mary, a double indemnity insurance policy that will pay handsomely should there be an accident. There's also debt. A lot of it, apparently. Despite his military pension and insurance payouts, Harvey has almost no money at this point. He spent far beyond his means. Those fast cars and yachts don't come cheap. And he still owes quite a bit in legal fees and penalties. So in 1961, Harvey is a charming yet financially desperate man with a history of violence and finding his way to accidents that turn out to not be accidents at all. And right now, he's teetering on the edge. 
The Duperalt family, of course, knows none of this when they book Harvey and the Bluebell for a 10-day chartered course in November 1961. The Duperalts are a family of five from Green Bay, Wisconsin. The father, Art, age 41, is a Navy veteran who served in the Pacific during the Second World War and who is now a successful optometrist working in the burgeoning field of contact lenses. His wife, Jean, 38, is a stellar athlete and former golf prodigy and together they have three children, Brian, 16, Terry Joe, 11, and Renee, 7. They are a close, loving family, one deeply committed to each other in every way. To Art especially, the Bluebell Cruise is a dream vacation. Lately, he's been working a lot more than he'd like, burning the candle at both ends. He misses coffee with his wife in the mornings before the kids rush to school. He misses golfing with his son, Brian. He misses tennis with Terry Joe, and he misses how the youngest, Renee, still needs him in just about every way, and it pains him to not be there for her. He sees this vacation as a way to reconnect and rebond with the family. Maybe Art thinks one day that they'll just pack it all up and move to Florida. He could quit his job and open a little cabana on the beach. As the vacation nears, the rest of the family starts feeling the same way. The jokes about leaving Wisconsin for good become a little more serious with each one. So when Terry Joe writes a letter to a friend and says, I doubt we'll ever come back, it's meant as a joke, but it proves to be far more ominous than Terry Joe or anyone else could ever imagine. On October 13th, 1961, yes, Friday the 13th to be exact, the Duperalt family packs up their station wagon and departs for Florida. They drive for several weeks. They tour the Midwest and the South. They take their time getting to Southern Florida. Theme parks, cabins, they are road tripping to the max. And then finally, they arrive. Warm, sandy beaches where they can roast their toes and bask in the sun. It's exactly how they imagined. Art grows relaxed, the tension in his neck and shoulders released at last, and his family and kids enjoy his presence in their lives once more. They all start to realize how much they've come to miss each other. The Duperalts arrive in Fort Lauderdale on November 8th. They head straight for the harbor, where Harvey and Mary await on the Bluebell. Harvey's there, greeting the family with a grin and pearly white teeth. He's also shirtless and bronzed. Mary, she's relaxed and welcoming, and gives off the feeling of someone who just knows how to enjoy life. Perhaps Art sees the couple as an inspirational ideal of the easy life he and his wife could live in Florida. Harvey steps forward and shakes Art's hand. He welcomes him aboard. Come on, there's no time to waste. The Bluebell sets sail that very day, headed straight for the Bahamas. They skim across the water, enjoy easy breezes, and stopping at little islands to swim in the warm shallows. Mary cooks for them, taking every consideration to meet each of their preferences. Harvey, contrary to his life of speed, takes the journey slow and casual, letting the Duperalts enjoy every moment of life at sea. But there are some things that don't feel right. For one, there's often a loaded rifle sitting out in the open, unattended, on counters or benches. And Harvey always has a pistol strapped to his waist. When questioned, he assures the family that where they're going, it's safe. The weapons are just to be extra cautious, You never know, he says. Better to have a gun and never need it than to not have one and wish you did someday. And because it's true, the family lets it go. Only there's another thing that doesn't feel right 
at night, the children overhear arguments between Harvey and Mary in the corridors and through thin walls. Art and Jean do not. They're sitting out on the bow, having put the children to bed. They snuggle into each other's arms and admire the stars. They feel young again, like they did when they first met. And when the energy of their new love hummed and burned, it's a sort of love someone like Harvey never allowed himself to experience. On November 11th, the Bluebell stops at Sandy Point on Abaco Island. It's a popular destination for tourists. The crisp blue water is shallow and clean and warm. The beaches are a soft white sand you don't find anywhere else. Jean, Terry Joe, and Renee spend the day on the beach sunning themselves and building sandcastles. Art and Harvey, having grown friendly in the days since they departed Fort Lauderdale, spend the day teaching Brian how to fish. While they're casting their lines off the aft of the bluebell, Art asks Harvey what it's like leading this sort of life. To which Harvey responds, free. So free you can't know it until you've lived it yourself. On the afternoon of the 12th, the bluebell departs Sandy Point for the return journey back to Fort Lauderdale. At 11 p.m. that night, Terry Joe wakes with a start. What unfolds that night will become a series of disjointed impressions stitched together in Terry Joe's mind. Trauma that never feels quite true, but nonetheless is the defining moment of youth stolen by a monster. She's torn from a dream by screams, feet stomping and running across the deck above her bunk. At 11 years old, Terry Joe is too young too naive and, this evening, too tired to really process what's happening around her on the bluebell. Bleary-eyed, she makes her way out of her bunk and into the corridor. She sees her mother and brother lying on the floor. There's a lot of blood on the floor, on the walls, and Jean and Brian lay motionless. Terry Jo calls for her dad, but there's no response and no sign of him anywhere. What young Terry Joe doesn't know is that her father overheard the captain, Julian Harvey, attempting to murder his own wife for life insurance money. Art had acted quickly, reacting to the scuffle, but he could not prevent it and died trying. One death turned into multiple as Julian rushed to kill all remaining witnesses. He'd had to kill the Duperalts too. Terry Joe runs to the main deck, where she encounters Harvey. He's shirtless and stained with blood. And there's a look in his eyes that she does not recognize but instantly fears. Harvey advances toward Terry Joe. There's something in his hand. Maybe it's a bucket. It looks like a pail. What's happening? Terry Joe asks. Just before Harvey strikes her in the face with the object in his hand, pushes her back below deck. Stay down there, he commands. Terry Joe will later remember that there was no fire. The masts were still in place, the wind and seas were calm as she stumbled below deck. But in that moment, she retreats to her bunk and curls into the fetal position, the taste of iron on her lips. The bodies, the pain, the look on Harvey's face, it's all around her, all she sees as she trembles with hands over her ears. It's then that the bitter smell of burning oil fills the room. Water rises from the floor and climbs steadily toward her mattress. Within seconds, the door to her bunk bursts open. And there stands Harvey with a rifle in hand, his breath heavy, demonic. 
he loads the rifle and stares at Terry Joe. And then he leaves. Terry Joe sits alone below deck as the water continues to rise. It's soaked into the mattress, climbing her legs. In that moment, her survival instinct kicks in. She's off the bed, wading to the door, climbing to the upper deck. Only to face Harvey again. They're sinking, it's obvious now. And the situation is becoming clear. He's not going to kill her, not directly. He'll let the water do the dirty work. Harvey strides to the bow, takes a look, but does not jump. He returns and asks Terry Joe if she knows if the life dinghy has broken loose. She has no idea, of course, but something inside tells her to say yes. Yeah, the lifeboat is gone. And before the words leave her lips, Harvey is also gone, his feet disappearing over the railing. She hears the splash of his strokes as he escapes, but she never sees him again. Terry Jo stares at the swirls around her ankles, but only for a moment, because a cork raft behind her catches the corner of her eye. She wants to grab it, but hesitates. She'll have to go it alone. There's no sign of her father, but how can she face the seas alone? And then the feeling returns, that deep-seated survival instinct within, and it tells her to grab the raft and go. And so she does. For 82 terrifying hours, Terry Joe Duperall, a mere child, clutches a thin raft on the open waters of the ocean. She has no shoes, no gloves, no shawl for warmth in the cool of night. No shelter from the scorching sun by day. Sharks circle, drawing closer with every pass as parrotfish bite at her feet. Soon, dehydration sets in. Her throat feels as though it's tearing apart. Eventually, a Greek freighter comes to her rescue, but by then, the girl is feverish. She's delirious. Who is she? Only time will tell. Terry Joe is airlifted to a trauma center in Miami. For several days, she hangs at the precipice of life and death. When she's finally strong enough to speak, she tells investigators all that she remembers. And her words contradict everything Harvey has said to paint himself as the hero. But as Terry Joe reveals the truth about that night on the Bluebell, Julian Harvey sits in his bathtub, staring at a blade. He's no stranger to the death it represents in this moment. He's been dipping his toe in death's murky waters his entire life, relishing in the rush it so unfailingly offers. But this time, it's for real. There's a survivor this time, and the truth will come out. It's time. He's decided. In a single motion, Julian Harvey cuts into his thigh. He then moves on to his own jugular and loses consciousness. In the morning, hotel cleaners find Julian Harvey dead in the tub. The scene is so gruesome, police initially wonder if it's a murder made to look like a suicide. Newspapers rush to cover Terry Joe's story, and it becomes clear why Harvey ended his own life. His low spirits were not on account of a tragedy beyond his control aboard the Bluebell. No, his despondency was because his own scheme was about to come undone by a child he had left for dead. After a months-long investigation, the U.S. Coast Guard rules on April 15th, 1962, that Harvey intentionally sank the Bluebell and murdered his wife. 
and Arthur, Jean, and Brian Duperalt. They cannot, however, conclude for certain that Renee's drowning death was the direct result of Harvey's actions. Theories abound about Harvey's motivations. After learning that the owner of the Bluebell, Harold Pegg, moonlighted as a drug smuggler, some suggest that Harvey wasn't at fault at all, and that the Bluebell tragedy was collateral damage in a drug-related turf war. But there's no material evidence for this. The simplest explanation seems the most certain. Five people died at the hands of Julian Harvey in an insurance scam gone awry. If Julian Harvey is an example of how not to live, Terry Joe Duperold is an inspiration of how to continue in the aftermath of tragedy. Harvey's life was an inauthentic pantomime of vanity and pride that descended into violent chaos and wreaked havoc across decades. Terry Joe Duperold's life, after losing her youth and family, is a model of how to rebuild an authentic life. After she recovers and participates in the investigation, Terry Joe moves back to Wisconsin to live with relatives. She goes on to live a full and happy life. While it's important to know and understand monsters of our past like Julian Harvey, we cannot let them have the final say. His actions had consequences on real, living humans with emotions, experiences, and traumas of their own. Instead of gawking at the sordid details of a tragedy, let's take inspiration from the strength and resilience of Terry Joe, who went on to rebuild her life and thrive in spite of everything. Or, as she said herself, I feel that you can't just live with your sorrow. You need to pick up and go. I was unfortunate in that I lost so much, but I've never dwelled upon that. I've tried to pick out the good and go on. But the question remains, how? How did Harvey become a monster, driven by fraud, greed, and violence, when, according to many, he was given everything? Material security as a child, good looks, intelligence. Clearly, there was still something missing, something broken. And clearly, that makes all the difference. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is executive produced by Jason and Carissa Weiser and Colin Thompson. Today's episode was written by Timothy L. Fosbury. It's produced by DJ Lubell, edited and sound designed by Anton Doty and Alex Gonzalez, and mixed and mastered by Matt Sewell. Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains is a cast original podcast. Hey everyone, Jason and Carissa here. If you're enjoying Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review. Also, we'd love your feedback. Go to castmedia.com slash scoundrelfeedback and answer our survey. Thanks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.